welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast. With us today is Andy Ellis, operating partner at YL Ventures, former Akamai CSO, and newly inducted member of the CSO Hall of Fame. We're here to talk about non-standard hiring practices and how Andy has built an amazing team using non-standard approaches. Andy, thanks so much for joining us here at the ranch. Alan, thanks for having me. How are you doing tonight? Doing good, sir. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity, until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. All right, so let's start with hearing a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about what you do in cyber today. So I sort of came into the cyber field as an Air Force officer. I was a cadet in Air Force ROTC, and I'm one summer down at Luke Air Force Base, and I get this very weird phone call sort of out of nowhere. It was a major in this newly formed unit, and it was an interview, which is the strangest thing. Those of you who've been in Air Force ROTC or any ROTC know you sort of go wherever the military sends you. And here I was being interviewed for a job, and it was for this newly formed information warfare squadron. This is back in the 90s. Information warfare isn't yet a thing. The Air Force had decided to pull it out from under the intel departments and instead actually put it in a warfighting unit. So we were a direct reporting squadron to 9th Air Force, which is Central Command, you know, CENTAF's headquarters unit. And so that was what I did. I get into the Air Force and I go down to South Carolina. And that's my job is doing computer network defense. Uh, we had a part of our team did computer network attack. I wasn't on the red team side of the house. So sort of I was set to be blue team. That's how I got into cyber. It's a career field. And I remember back then, you know, we didn't call it cyber, but I think we've all given up and, and that's now the name for our career field. And when I got out of the Air Force, I went to Akamai because I had some friends who worked there and they said, you know, we really need some security help and spent 20 years at Akamai. 20 years. That's a long time, especially for, for a company that we think of as being a relatively recent, uh, you know, and modern sort of company, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's only 23 years old. I guess I was there for 21. So I came two years after they incorporated. So how about what you're doing in cyber now? What do you talk to me about YL Ventures and kind of a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, so a few years ago, I ran into YL Ventures when Akamai and YL were both investing in the same company. And I really hit it off with Yoav Ladersdorf, who's the founder and senior partner. And I started working with him in his advisor program. For those of you who aren't familiar with how VCs operate, you can think of venture capital as almost being a whole pipeline. And there's you know, seed venture capitalists and growth venture capitalists. And a seed venture capitalist is somebody who goes and finds founders you know, at the very beginning, gives them their first influx of cash. That's what YL does. Now, when you realize you give somebody that first bit of money, they don't have a company yet. It's really just you know, two or three people in an idea, and they're going to have to build a company as they go. As an advisor, my job was to help find these companies and vet them. 
So YL had a process for identifying which companies they were interested in, and I would talk to them and hear what their proposed solution was. And sometimes you'd listen and you're like, you're really brilliant technically, but you have no idea what a CISO actually wants to buy here. You know, hard pass on this one. Other times you'd hear an idea and you are like, oh my God, that's just amazing. The first time I met with uh, Orca Security, which I think a lot of folks know now, it's actually at a football game. You know, mm -hmm. it's an Israeli startup. They work on Sundays. I'm at a Patriots game and I get this phone call that says, hey, can you meet this company? And I heard the idea and I was like, oh my God, you should go invest right now. Nice. Uh, and in fact, I've, I've been advising them ever since, uh, Orca, uh, as a result, I got so excited by what they were doing. Sounds like a fun adventure right there. It, it really was. And so when it was time to leave Akamai, I reached out to Yoav and I said, hey, you know, I'd be interested in a bigger role. And we had this great conversation. And so I'm an operating partner, which is sort of a job title you don't often hear in the VC space. And my job is now I focus on everybody we've invested in. And I'm sort of an executive without portfolio. So I go to each one of those CEOs and I meet with them and say, hey, how can I help? Uh, sometimes I'm just vetting what they're currently doing. What's on your roadmap? What might a CISO want out of that? Sometimes it's, you know, they're in a sales deal and they would just like to have somebody show up and do a title match with a CSO. And I can show up and you know, I know what each of the companies is doing. I can just be that executive in the room mm -hmm. to help talk with a peer and learn, like, is this really a good fit? Because one of the things I learned a long time ago dealing with vendors and being a vendor at Akamai is that 99% of sales is actually about getting to a no. And you want to spend as little energy getting to no so that you can spend all the energy on getting to yeses. Right. And if there's just not going to be a fit there, you know, sometimes I can say, hey, you know, this just isn't a fit. You know, this is great. I hear you have this other problem. This isn't the fit. Hey, let's do something else. And that's why people sometimes want me in that room. With one of the companies, I'm working with them on executive coaching for the folks that they've hired because I have a lot of experience in building a diverse and, and scalable security team. And that's what all of these people are doing is building security teams, even if it includes you know, HR and marketing. But how do you make that team function as a group of peer executives? That brings us to our topic that we want to talk about tonight, which yep. is you have built a successful team. Now, you and I had a conversation a while ago, and we were talking about kind of a couple of issues simultaneously, sort of the lack of cyber talent was one of the things we talked about, and the idea that you have to build teams rapidly and quickly and get them up to speed. And you found a solution that addresses both of those needs while also building a very clever and very innovative team. And I thought it'd be really cool for my listeners to hear a little bit about that. So why don't you start with an overview of sort of what you were facing when you walked in the door? How much team did you have to build? How quickly did you have to build it? And then we can kind of have a conversation about some of the roles and how you got into that. So when I came to Akamai, I was security hire number one. So that goes back, you know, that's 2000. I'm employee number one for some of a security perspective. You know, it's about 500 people in the company. I become the head of the security function in 2002, the company had to lay off like 30% of the workforce in, in one fell swoop. You know, we were over the course of two years, we went from 1200 employees to 550. Wow. You know, Akamai is sort of this interesting study that we were one, I think the only company to ever have a 600 fold drop in stock price and survive. Wow. Right. That's just unheard of. And it was a close one. So now I've got to build this team back from three and, you know, fast forward from 2002 
to 2021 and it's 95 people. Okay. Right. And it doesn't grow linearly on plan. That's never how things like this work. You know, a lot of times I'd walk into a year and, you know, I expect a flat budget. And then three months into the year, somebody comes to me and says, hey, Andy, we need you to do this thing. I'm like, I just can't. I don't have the resources for it. And like, well, you know, how could you find the resource? I said, well, if I pulled this person and this person and this person, and then here's all the work that would stop. And that was always an important thing of course. is to tell people that you could do something, but that there was a cost and a trade off. Here's the price. And so, right. And sometimes that was really what caused people to say, okay, we'll pay that price. And sometimes they'd say, well, we'll give you the money so that you can backfill, but now go and do this new thing. And that really taught me one important lesson about hiring, which is when somebody needs you to get new senior staff in your team, look and see if you have somebody who's almost senior, that you can promote to do that job and backfill the almost senior person instead. Try not to hire senior people. Try to hire the most junior person you can get away with and promote everybody up the chain. I like that. That really does a couple of different things for you. First of all, retention, because now people are getting opportunities. They're not getting stuck in a job. They see the ability to grow. The second is... You know, the longevity problem in salaries. Look, it is, I think, true across the entire industry that the longer you stay in one place, the more your salary is going to fall behind what you could get on the open market. That's just the way that HR teams tend to structure compensation strategies is there's just not enough money to keep promoting people commensurate with how the market is moving and, and their development. Exactly. So if somebody's going to give you money for a principal architect, then promote a senior architect to principal architect and an architect to senior architect and a senior researcher to architect and a researcher to senior researcher, and then go hire a researcher. And you just managed to take this incremental budget for a principal architect, promote five people with it, and then hire a researcher. Um, and that's money you're not going to get in the normal comp cycle. And that works at the companies that allow that sort of physic. It's always been interesting to me that, um, you know, promotion money has always been, in most companies I work for, a bucket over here. Headcount is a headcount. And once you get that headcount approved, the cost of it is actually less relevant. Like, I've seen some weird company physics that would prohibit exactly that strategy, but that's a great strategy if you can if you can get away with it. It is. And the trick is to figure out at any given time how your HR and finance teams are going to operate and play them off against each other. I had years in which to do that strategy, we would literally open a rack as a principal architect. We would then hire our own senior architect into the job. We would then open a backfill rack for a senior architect. And we would cascade it down because that was the only way to pull it off. And we did that. And then like halfway through the year, I went and I got my HR business partner and my finance business partner. And I said, just so you know, I'm happy to keep playing this game. And all I'm doing is making your people fill out more paperwork, but I will happily do that. Or you can let me just hire a researcher and, and take promote. the affordability, the difference between what was budgeted and what I spent and put that into headcount. And some years they said, great, do that. And other years they were like, no, no, you can't do that. And we really don't want you hiring your, your own people. And I said, but I can do internal hiring, right? And they're like, well, if you must, okay, I'll keep doing it that way. <laughs> like there is always a way. There's a great a Heinlein quote that comes to mind. My dad used to be a quartermaster in the Coast Guard, which is different than a quartermaster in the Army. And uh, Heinlein's quote, I think, is more about the Army slash Navy. But he says, yeah, there's two kinds of quartermasters in the military. The ones who, when you ask them for something, will hunt through the rule book to find why you can't have it. 
and the ones who will hunt through the rule book to figure out how they can do this for you. And that's the trick of being you know, a good CSO or a good executive of any kind is always try to figure out how to let the rule book help you and help your organization. So you've covered your your promotion from within strategy yep. and your backfill. Now let's talk about some of the specific roles. You had mentioned uh, hiring some folks for certain roles on the team that that at a glance would make no sense at all for a CISO, and yet you found to be really, really effective and, and repeatable. I think my flagship one that I always go with is hiring librarians. And this one sort of stuns everybody. But if you have a GRC team, right, you're maintaining compliance. And for us, we had, I think, 20 different environments we were governing compliance across at any given time. And we've got like seven different standards, ISO and PCI, SOC 2 with each of its different domains, FedRAMP. Oh, don't get me started on FedRAMP. You're keeping track of hundreds of documents. Why would you take a person who has specialized their career in security and taking apart systems and understanding vulnerabilities, who has deep technical knowledge, and tell them to go manage a library? When there's an entire career field dedicated to managing libraries and learning technical language to be able to do that. So I hired a reference librarian who sort of sat at the middle of it. It was just amazing. Within six months, he could walk into a meeting with you and I'd be talking with an auditor who'd ask me some question and I'd make a comment about the existence of a policy and I'd have an IM from the librarian who's sitting across the room with the text out of the policy. Nice. So that I could literally quote it in the room. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, this is just awesome. And that really gave me an appreciation and a recognition that one of the challenges that we have is we think of security as a set of skills. And it really isn't, right? Security is a way of looking at the world. And then within our career field, there are specific skills. You know, there are people who are great at reversing software. And you could think of somebody who reverses software as being somebody who does QA, right? That's often a QA role in other places. Mm -hmm. And so you might say, you know, how do I take a QA engineer and teach them how to reverse software because that's not a big shift? Or we have people who write reports. I think almost every big company is now in the business of publishing a report about their data. Right. And what is the job of publishing a report? Well, it's taking technical data and technical jargon and making it consumable to people who've never seen this data before. There's an entire industry that does that. We call it journalism. And so we hired journalists to come in and be those storytellers for us. Usually we hired people who'd been on a security beat, but not always. Sometimes it was just people who had a good technical knowledge. Um, one of them actually had been a former Akamai employee who'd been our, had gone from being a reporter to running our social account. She'd been you know, at Akamai on Twitter and she'd come to our attention one year. She was at RSA, I want to say in like 2013. I was keynoting and I remember that like our Twitter account was tweeting these amazing things like as a first time attendee, we'd get, they'd given her a full conference pass. She goes to every talk and she's just tweeting out these things. And I'm like, this is brilliant. Um, and our marketing team turned over. She got laid off. And when we were next doing a hire for a technical writer, I said, I want her. And she shows up in the interview. And we're like, absolutely, let's hire her. Because we know she understands how to distill technical information into a consumable fashion. So you've hired journalists. You've hired librarians. You've hired yep. marketing personnel. What are some other clever clever role adjustments here that you've yeah. done? So the, the OR field, the operations research, you know, people who've done work in logistics, in pipeline management, 
one of the, the folks who'd worked for me, one of her jobs had been in the automotive supply industry, right? Post Katrina. She had to go find where uh, trains had been you know, put onto sidings. You know, they basically shut down the rail network as Katrina comes in and they're trying to restore its supplies. And so it's like, which part has to get where first? And so let's go figure out what's on what siding, which cargo container are you going to pull off so it can get to this distributor so something can go in the right place. Right? That is some pretty amazing program management. Wow, that's a Gantt chart. Yeah. And so for a while, she ran. She actually ran our first FedRAMP audit, and then she ran our severe vulnerability reduction program. And when I left, she was my chief of staff. Nice. She could basically run any function in the team. She's not the best technical person on any given problem, but that's okay. Her job was to manage the technical people. She knew exactly what they could all do and how to make sure that we delivered on the results that we needed. In a timely manner and with all dependencies accounted for, sure. Yep. What other interesting hires did you pull off here? This is this yep. is amazing so far. Like I'm hearing at this point, at least half the team has come from non-standard hiring practices. Oh yeah, probably about half the team. You know, there were folks who did, they came out of a university like you know, BU or Northeastern or MIT, came in. And in a sense, those people almost took longer to be at full utility mm-hmm. because they're going to come in and sort of start from, they've got a great technical background, but we want them to become deep technical experts. And they're going to spend a lot of time very heavily focused. But we brought in people who had done you know, safety engineering. One of my uh, staff had been a safety engineer at a water treatment plant, that her job was to walk around and make sure that all of the controls were actually being followed. So she comes in and she doesn't necessarily have this deep knowledge of computer systems, but as soon as any concept gets introduced to her, she can immediately fit it into a safety model, which is not that far from a security model. Right. You know, when we're looking at how do we do vulnerability reduction, because she takes over the severe vulnerability program. Like she was one of the best people to go and talk to people, to folks around the organization about what they were doing. And she could see if their stories didn't fit in ways that are technical, deep technical experts couldn't notice that there was an inconsistency. She would notice, be like, hey, this story doesn't really match with the story that they told six months ago. So she can catch things over time. And I assume also by bouncing around the different facets of the team, she's almost giving you what a I'm picturing like breach and attack simulation. I'm picturing Baz, the way it can validate chains of controls and tell you where your weak spots are. I'm assuming that uh, this woman was able to do largely the same function. Exactly. She could say, oh, you know, I just heard this thing. And in context, that confuses me. Right? And a lot of times that's how we'd find things is we told people, look, if you're confused by something you have heard, that's okay. Right now, come talk to somebody else and ask them, is it your confusion or is it that you have just detected some infelicity mm-hmm. in these two different things you know? Because anytime there's that infelicity, that's probably a place that we have a problem we want right. to go solve. Right. The whole team version of cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> like, yeah. We're saying X, we're doing Y, or we're doing X and Y, and Y and X are contradictory, whatever the, whatever the pattern might be, she could suss that out. Yeah. That's absolutely genius. Yeah, we had another person who'd, who'd been a QA manager and she didn't think she would could come work for us. It took us a long time to recruit her with several people because on the side, she actually ran one of the largest science fiction conventions in New England. Oh, wow. That was just big. She was a big one, a big piece of that organization team. 
you know, she was like, why would anybody want that skill set? And I'm like, that's a skill set. You have demonstrated that you can manage a lot of people who don't have any time to actually give you, which is exactly the security problem, right? Everybody has a day job, which is not security. And you're trying to get them to squeeze in. Yeah. And so what's that shortest path? She was a fantastic hire. She really just understood you know, how to get things done. She ended up running our entire tools team for our security function because she could figure out like what was the work that would be most beneficial to all of the people she was supporting. And that's a clever skill. It's almost like the project manager who learns how to do everything with, with nothing, right? And, right? and runs around bargaining here and, hey, Fred can do this. If Sally can do that, Sally, can you do this? If Jane can do that, Jane, can you do this? If Bill can do that? And the big circle all the way back to Fred and somehow magically everyone gets on board and does what he needed him to do in the first right. place. It's like the stone soup approach to project management. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. I'll bring a stone, just add a couple of carrots and it'll be a much better stone soup. And yep. Yep. That's exactly it. That's genius. All right. So what other clever roles? It sounds like you, you had quite a few here. Yeah. And then a lot of what we would also do is we hired through our, we had Akamai had what's called the Akamai Technical Academy, which was this retraining program that would take people from underrepresented groups, women, minorities, veterans, and put them through a six month sort of boot camp. often teach them either to be an operator or a QA engineer. And what I did is I said to the, the HR team that ran that, I said, I will always hire one person out of that. I don't even need to see resumes in advance. I said, the criteria that I want is tell the instructors that I want them to, to notice who annoys them the most. Not because they're rude or a jerk, but just because they ask the hard questions when they'd really rather not address that question right now. Like who has the insights that are disruptive and I'll hire them. And we will go put them to work doing something. We don't even know what it will be. We got some really great people out of that. I'm going to say not a single one of them was a bad hire or even a questionable hire. Because you could bring them in and say, great, now you're a program manager because that's your skill set orientation. And we'll go put you on some program. And your job is to just ask tough questions. And if you don't feel comfortable asking them in the room of the person, great, come back and ask us the tough question. And we'll go relay that. Right. Um, you know, we hired teachers, people who'd done you know some form of teaching, either you know early elementary in a couple places, college in other places. Although there's not a lot of difference sometimes between a college student and a kindergartner, <laughs> because a lot of what we're doing is education. How do you communicate a message in as little time as possible in a way that will stick? And teachers are great at that. They're fantastic storytellers. My principle is that most security jobs are insertion jobs. They're jobs that take a skill set that has nothing to do with security and adds a security flavor to it. And so we could hire security people and try to teach them this whole skill set or go find a career that already has that skill set and then be willing to teach them the security flavor. And bolt on a little security. Sure. You know, it's funny, years and years and years ago as an undergraduate, I paid my way through undergraduate working computer jobs. I was already, I already had a career. I went to college yep. to educate myself in the way I desired to be educated, which was sort of that classic education, liberal arts foundation. I wanted to go learn to learn and, and learn about the foundations and underpinnings of everything I knew and believed as a, you know, as a person living on the planet and the country and culture that I lived in, right? The computer yep. stuff I was already doing. I didn't need to go to computer school. I was already doing that for a living. So I explored 
the whole world of soft sciences and liberal arts. And in one semester, I might be in a philosophy class, a political science class, an English lit class, a sociology class, you know, on and on and on. And I rapidly, as I honed in on English lit as sort of the center of all of that, that's kind of where I ended up landing more than anything. I, I derived a model for myself, and this is all the way back in my early 20s. I, I built a model that basically said every system we have for managing the world, be it a hard science, a soft science, a language, a whatever it might be, is basically a combination of a grammar and a syntax and a vocabulary. Yep. That every methodology we have for approaching the world and understanding the world is a grammar, a syntax, and a vocabulary. And once you've gotten to that level of seeing it, I, I think this is exactly what you're talking about here. Teachers can teach. Teachers can tell a story. Teachers can convey information quickly. They've mastered the grammar and the syntax, and all you have to teach them is the vocabulary of security, and they're off and running. Yeah, and the trick is, like, when you're putting a teacher in that position is learn how deep do they need to go on a daily basis and then make sure they get one level deeper. Right. Because you're always going to have problems if you teach exactly to your domain knowledge. Mm -hmm. So make sure your domain knowledge is always a little bit deeper than whatever your job requires. And that's usually going to be sufficient to keep you out of trouble because you'll recognize as you get closer to that danger zone where you're not sure. And create a safe environment for people to say, look, I don't know, and I'll go find out and I'll get back to you. Yep. Teach people, one of the most important things we had was the idea of an apology budget. And we said, if your boss does not have to apologize on your behalf at some frequency, you're doing it wrong. You're playing it too safe. Nice. You have to make failures because we're trying to help you grow. Growth means errors. Now, we don't want you to you know, make an error so big as a new employee that the CSO has to apologize for you. Your budget isn't that big. So try not to go that far over your skis. Right. But, you know, for my direct staff, yeah, I'm going to have to apologize on their basis, you know, on some frequency. And that's then helpful because I could then come back to them and say, look, I'm apologizing a little too frequently. Can you tone it down? And now we're just calibrating. It's not a criticism. Right. I'm not saying, oh, my God, I don't want you ever making mistakes. I'm saying, You've made a few too many mistakes in that person's direction. I can't afford to keep apologizing to them for you because it looks bad for you. It's funny because, uh, you know, we've had other folks on the show. Chris Fulon was here and we talked about breaking into cyber and, you know, his breaking into cyber podcast. And we've talked about attitude and aptitude and all these traits and attributes that you look for. Uh, Gabe Lawrence was on the show talking about how in his purple team, he looks for people that have what he calls the evil bit. Um, and then there's that yep. innate curiosity, that drive to get to root cause. And I think that ties into your folks that ask the annoying questions of the teachers in the six month boot camp. That's that drive for root cause. That's that drive to know, to really know what happened. Why did it happen? What's the cause? What's no, that's not enough answer. I want more answer. I want to go deeper. Exactly. That's all these skills and attributes come together. It's, 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 it's amazing to see so many smart folks in cyber honing in on the same traits. And, and if so many of us have done this, if I'm having this conversation with you and I had this conversation with Gabe and I had this conversation with Mr. Fulon, why aren't the rest of us honing in on this? Why aren't the rest of us catching on? Because this is some amazing stuff that every single hiring manager in cyber could benefit from. So I think the simple answer is it's expensive. If you're going to hire, even following a normal hiring process and you want to do it well, it's a half-time job. Yep. Now, the second person you're hiring is not another half-time job. At the very least, like dealing with the bureaucracy is a big piece of this. Right. But if you want to hire outside the norm, and your HR department generally does not want you to hire outside the norm, there's a lot of equity issues around it that we could spend another 28 minutes talking about. Um, they're going to push back on you. 
And so you have to recognize that this is a long, slow process to change how your organization operates that you're going to have to invest in. You know, most people will look at it and say, look, I got one position. I want to hire the perfect person right here. Rather than saying, I got most of the right people already. If I hired one person that can just take off a bunch of work from the folks who know how to do the job I need done, I'd have the free time to do it. So that's another reason I'm always a fan of hiring junior people because they can always take work off of your existing senior people and they can learn that more quickly than a senior person can learn your technology and your culture. I love that. Well, listen, we're getting close to the end of the show. I have one question I always ask everybody, and that is, what keeps you going in cyber? Why do you wake up in the morning, hop out of bed and say, I'm willing to do this again? It's really simple. I used to have written on a whiteboard in my office when I was thinking about what's my, my purpose in the world. And I've always seen myself as improving the systems that I walk through. That when I encounter a system, I want to you know, tweak it and figure out what makes it work and make it work better. And to me, that's what cyber really is. Like this is the part of almost every technology organization that has been least well paid attention to. And how can I help make it better? And now I'm at a place where I can use all these companies that I support and try to figure out how can I help make the industry better through these companies. All right, Andy Ellis, operating partner at YL Venture, former Akamai CISO and newly inducted member of the CISO Hall of Fame. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.